spirit so that we can have a capacity to listen to you. We listen to a lot of words in our week and we see a lot of images. Would you now baptize our imaginations through your images and through your words? And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. And uh, turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 in your bulletins or Bibles. We're going to talk today about what it's, what's a great response, what's a good response uh, for the church of Jesus when we are the objects of suspicion. You know, I love our city, and, uh, and I'm so glad to be here uh, with you. I'm so glad that we're here at Uplift High School, that we're in Uptown, that we have a stake in Chicago, that we don't, we don't just sleep here. We really live here. We work here. We care a great deal and labor every day for justice in our city, for healing in our city, for the good of our city. A lot of us you know, are raising kids here. We want our kids to have an appreciation for and love the city, not just to use its resources, but to seek its good. As I interact with you, I appreciate so much uh, how invested you are in your neighbors' lives, in your coworkers' lives. I, I see and hear about many of you linking arms with people all over Chicago of all kinds of religious persuasions or non-religious persuasions seeking the good of our city. I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, loving Jesus and loving Chicago are not mutually exclusive at all. They overlap all the time. They're mutually reinforcing loves, loving Jesus and loving Chicago. In fact, Jesus changes us from the inside out. So actually, we have more resources to love our city. We love the city more because we have been loved by Jesus. We love the city more because we have been loved by Jesus. And so he actually gives us the capacity to love our city to life, to love our city into life, rather than criticize it to death. We know that. We know that Jesus gives us the capacity to love our city in that way, to actually endure when things get hard. Some of our fellow Chicagoans don't always know that. They don't don't know about the mutually overlapping thing, the, the reinforcing loves, loving Jesus and loving Chicago. Some of our neighbors are, quite frankly, deeply suspicious of a commitment to Jesus of a commitment to the kingdom of God, a commitment to the message of Jesus. And and maybe you're here and you're curious and you feel that way. You're suspicious of Christianity. You're suspicious um, of religious people in general. And if you're here, I want you to know, I really hope that this community can be a safe place for you to process those suspicions and work those out in real relationships. And maybe you're here, but you've been on the receiving end of that suspicion. You've actually felt other people's suspicion when they find out how deep your commitment to Jesus Christ is. 
when your, when your coworkers or fellow artists or professors learn how the gospel animates your public life, how the gospel of Jesus has actually propelled you into public life, they might raise their eyebrows. They might do this to you. They might hold you at an arm's distance. They might signal their suspicion in some way. Eventually, you, you might get the message from them, hey, you know, you're a nice person and all, um, but we may not want you on the Chicago team because your beliefs are extreme. It, it might just be better for everyone if you either change your beliefs, which you're a perfectly reasonable person, I could see that happening. You either change your beliefs or kind of just move out to the far, far suburbs or, or deep into the Midwest where the people believe like you. But I'm not sure you belong here where there's cultural influence, where there's progress. Not only are you suspect, you represent the past. You know, I grew up around faith. I grew up in faith in my small Midwestern town. But it was hypocritical and cruel and unimaginative. And I moved here to get away from all of that. And I'm finally in a place of freedom, and you kind of represent the past. You know, I realized early on that the Christian sexual ethic was unrealistic for me and unloving to others. Haven't you realized that? Have you realized that yet? Most everyone else has, and that's why Christianity is in decline, because it's so stubborn and mean about that. No offense, you're a nice person, exceptionally nice person. You smile all the time, but you need to choose. You either need to get on the right side of history, or you need to get off the Chicago team. How do we love, how do we serve our fellow Chicagoans who feel that way? That's what I want to talk about today. We'll talk about this next week as well. As your pastor, I want to equip you in the next couple of sermons to live faithfully in that task of loving Jesus in such a way that we love Chicago even when we are on the receiving end of suspicion, even when we are misunderstood. How do we live here and be faithful to Jesus in a beautiful and compelling way? We need to learn how to do this. And I want to draw from Revelation and as your pastor, help you do that. Here's why. When we're on the receiving end of misunderstanding and suspicion from our neighbors, we are tempted to live a double life. That's the pressure. Live a double life. We live a life, a, a public life that is scrubbed free of any gospel associations. A public life that is kind of scrubbed free. It's nice. It's perhaps uh, good-natured. But it is scrubbed free of distinct identity so that there's no friction whatsoever. And then we have a private prayer life, a private worship life. And we keep the world separate. It helps us save face and build credibility. And I face this pressure and sometimes cave to this pressure myself.
There's a better way than living a double life in Chicago. There's a better way. And it's not becoming an us versus them culture warrior um, that's always stating what we believe. And that's always alienating people. And that's always treating, treating truth as if we have the complete package. It's recovering our Christian hope in worship so that we can display that Christian hope in public. Rediscovering and participating in true, deep Christian hope in worship so that we can then display that hope in our life, Monday through Saturday and Sunday afternoons. We need to see. We need to see again. As I prayed, we need our imaginations to be baptized so that we can see Jesus' vision for our future, which is incandescently bright. We need to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and to our church about what is real. Because we are so often subject to false images that mangle our imaginations and turn us away from and blind us to what is real. And we need the ballast of the Father who will help us endure and ultimately overcome the suspicion that isn't always deserved. And all of this is absolutely loving for our neighbors and good for our city. Our city needs the church of Jesus to be filled with hope, to be a non-anxious presence in every segment of society, in every segment of cultural influence, be it uh, be, be it very visible or very hidden, the, uh, the city needs us to be filled with Christian hope. It's loving for them, and it's good. It's good for our city. Yes, it is true that we represent the past. We've been caught up in an ancient story that is beautiful and is true and that is ongoing. We belong to that story. It's a story with the happiest ending you could ever imagine. And it's the best thing that could ever happen to Chicago. Every saint that has gone before us in this ancient story is cheering us on, surrounding us, and cheering us on in this journey. Yes, we are ambassadors of the past, and we are also ambassadors of the future. Because we worship the king who holds both past and future in the palms of his hand and is bringing all things to completion. That is an extraordinary challenge to be ambassadors of the past, of the ancient beautiful story of the gospel and the future. It's not a new challenge. It's not a new challenge. We find ourselves in a situation very similar to the church in Pergamum which was a city in Asia Minor in the first century. Pergamum was an academic and cultural and military powerhouse in ancient Rome. It was one of the shining cities of the future, one of the best places for millennials in ancient Rome. And it was not favorable to the Christian faith. Oh, the Christian faith, that's the, oh, that's the faith of Jerusalem. Oh, the old religious people. <laughs> but Pergamum is the city of the future. All kinds of dynamic things happening in Pergamum. That actually Christian faith might be actually getting in the way, might be a problem 
for Pergamum. And so the church was dealt with as a problem. The city needed the church in Pergamum to be filled with Christian hope, to be filled with the images from the Spirit, to have their imaginations baptized so that their vocations could be renewed, so that the city could be renewed. Jesus himself dictated a letter to this church to encourage them, to give them hope, so that they could seek the good of the city even though they were on the other end of oppressive and sometimes violent suspicion from its cultural gatekeepers. So let's listen to Jesus' encouragement. Let's be filled with these images because their situation overlaps remarkably well with ours. Let's read Revelation 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, Hear the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Hear the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, if there's someone standing before you and they had a sharp two-edged sword, you probably want to listen to them. Here's the first image, which is going to revolutionize the way the church in Pergamum saw reality. Jesus is speaking of himself here. He's the one who holds the sharp two-edged sword. And he's reminding this church in Pergamum that things are not always what they seem. Things are not always what they seem. In Pergamum, it really did seem like the Roman emperor held the biggest sword. The Roman emperor at that time was an absolute narcissistic tyrant who killed people on a whim. There's historical record of the Roman emperor at this time at the local games seeing a group, a small group of people rooting against the team that he was rooting for. And after the games were over, he pointed to them and said, you see those people over there on the other team, on the other, uh, rooting for the other side? Kill them all. He held the sword. And they all died. He enforced the way things worked. See, in Pergamum, the one who wields the strongest sword sits on the biggest throne. And if you sit on the biggest throne, you also are the author of history. You're the author of the future. You decide how things are going to go in Pergamum. And the Roman emperor was far and away the one who held the biggest sword in the eyes of the church in Pergamum. But for those with ears to hear, with those with eyes to see, ultimate reality. Jesus holds the biggest sword. He sits on the biggest throne. It is Jesus who is a threat to Caesar's kingdom, not the other way around. And the church in Pergamum needed to be filled with this on a deep level. Jesus says this at the beginning of verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I know where you dwell. Jesus tells this church, I know where you live. Not just where you sleep, I know where you live, where you carry out your daily life, where you have interactions with neighbors, where you attempt and fail things, where you engage in relationships. I know what it's like to carry on faithfully in your town. Let's imagine a fictional but historically accurate scenario. 
Imagine with me the situation of Marcus. Marcus is a faithful Christian in Pergamum. Marcus is a stone worker. He learned this trade from his father, and there's lots of stonework to be done in ancient Rome. There's a lot of streets to be made. There's a lot of temples to be built. But in order to keep the business flowing, Marcus needs to be an active member of uh, the Stoneworkers Trade Guild. That's how things worked in Pergamum and ancient Rome. And where does the Trade Guild meet? The McCormick Center? No, they didn't have McCormick Center back in Pergamum. But you know what they did have? They had the Temple of Zeus. Imagine with me here, if Pergamum is in the valley, imagine this hardwood floor is the valley, up thousands of feet, thousands of feet up on the hill. First, there's an amphitheater with 80 rows, a very steep seat, so steep that you could fall down and crash among the actors. But beyond even that, there is the Temple of Zeus, a towering, massive structure. It was actually an architectural wonder that is still the, the object of uh, archaeologists' fascination today. And the Temple of Zeus, yeah, sure, people began to see it as superstitious. But in the Temple of Zeus, that's where you worship Caesar, the real, the real god, the real, the real ruler. And that's where the guilds met. So, come on, Marcus. Why don't you show up to the Temple of Zeus and network a little bit? Because after all the networking's over, there's women or boys or whatever strikes your fancy to keep you company afterwards with the best drink in all of Pergamum. And the choicest meats to feast on. It's like the best place, the best restaurant, the best trade association center. The best hotel. And that's where the business gets done. Oh, and of course, you'll be offering sacrifices to your ancestral gods. Zeus being one of them, for old time's sake. But most importantly, oh, you're going to be offering sacrifices to Caesar. Monetarily and otherwise. And you will proclaim him as your Lord. Unless you have a problem with that. Do you have a problem with that? Marcus? Because come to think of it, you haven't been showing up to the guild meetings. Marcus, are you too good for us? Um, I'd like to send some business your way. You're an excellent uh, cr uh, tra uh, stone craftsman. But you keep blowing us off. And now I'm concerned that you might be a denier of the gods or worse ungrateful to your Lord Caesar who has brought you peace and protection of Rome. You ungrateful, Marcus? What are you going to do, Marcus? You're nothing. You're powerless. You meet with this little prayer group. Meanwhile, Zeus and ultimately Caesar rules over the whole city and that's the future. So get with the future. You're not in Jerusalem anymore. Change your beliefs or get off the team, bro. Don't create fiction, friction in public. A, a little prayer meeting, that's fine. That's a little subversive. But don't you dare take that public. Don't you dare let that interact with 
or, or, or rub against, create friction with Pergamum values. Don't be an extremist. You're not an extremist, Marcus. Don't be an extremist. Or you might end up like your former pastor, Antipas. And speaking of Antipas, Jesus has something to say about him. Second half of verse 13, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Antipas, killed among you. Jesus calls him a witness, um, which the word for witness is where we get our word martyr. He, He told his story and Rome didn't like the story. So Rome shot the messenger. Now, Christian tradition bears witness to the fact that Antipas was the first bishop over Pergamum. He was their first pastor. And whether or not Christian tradition here is accurate, Antipas, as Jesus says, was killed among them. He was one of the faithful at the very least. And the powers that be tracked him down and shut his story down. They decided to make an example of him among the church in Pergamum. And can you imagine that? Rome deciding to make an example of a, of a Christian leader who is teaching things they found subversive in their midst. Don't be like him. Don't be like him. Don't be extreme. I mean, why would you be extreme? Your religion is dying. Your religion is shrinking. We have the scalp to prove it. We killed him. And we're not gonna, you think we're going to stop with Antipas? We will not stop with Antipas, Marcus. So change your beliefs or get off the Pergamum team. You're on the wrong side of history. Your way's not, not going to fly here. To their great credit, the church in Pergamum did not bow the knee to Caesar. She did not bend her knee to Zeus. She did not give her heart to smaller hopes. She had stood fast. But nevertheless, the cracks in Pergamum were showing. Read with me in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have taught some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Now, what in the world was the teaching of Balaam and what did he teach to Balak? And what does that have to do with the church in Pergamum? And what does that have to do with us? Okay, this is really important. When Israel was en route from being ultimate slaves to being ultimate sons, they had to pass through the wilderness for 40 years. And the thing was that in the wilderness, it was really hard to believe and remember that you were totally blessed by the living God who owned history, who had a promised land to bring you to. It was so hard to believe that. And so Israel had to have people who would remind them of what was true. And Balaam was one of those guys to remind them, you have a blessed future. You are are sons and daughters of the Most High God. There's a promised land awaiting. And in that promised land, when you dwell there, you will be a light for the nations. The whole world will see and know of our God, and it will be good for them. There will be healing and justice and beauty and truth because you are faithful to the Most High God. But en route, there were some people who were found that offensive. 
were, were, were threatened by this group of God-blessed people. And the king of Moab, Balak, was one of those guys. And so you know what he did? He hired Balaam, who was one of the, one of the, one of the reminders of the great promise for the people of God. And he was like, hey, instead of blessing the people of, Israel, of your people Israel, how about we have an arrangement where I pay you uh, just a thank offering and you actually curse the people of Israel. Would that work out? Could you do that? And Balaam's like, oh, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of, eh, but we'll talk. Let's talk. And so he gets on his donkey and he's like, all right, let's, let's go see what the honorarium's going to be for the turning blessing into cursing. And his donkey sees the angel of God with a sword in his hand saying, don't do it. And the donkey's like, oh, I don't think so. And he beats the donkey and the donkey's like, what are you doing? Uh, there's, a, there's an angel with a sword and I'm not going. The donkey's talking. But he finds his way anyway. Balaam finds his way anyway to, to, to Moab and to Balak, the king of Moab. And Balak, the king of Moab, is like, here, take this generous offering. Now, curse your people. And so Balaam's like, all right. Ah! Blessing came out. He, couldn't, he tried to curse God's people. He couldn't. So he's like, all right, let me try again. Sorry about that. <laughs> ah! Blessing came out. The most beautiful, some of the most poetic blessings upon the people of, of God came out of Balaam. He tried to curse him, he couldn't. And so Balak's like, what am I paying you for? And Balaam's like, all right, you know what? You know what? Okay, let's start over. This isn't working, but I have a plan. So when you go to conflict with the people of Israel, I've got a, I've got a uh, suggestion for you. When they come at you, in battle, to defend themselves, don't send out your men. Send out your women. And, and give them all of the various spiritualities and fun things to do from Moab. And just invite them to just mix it up. Because that's going to be so tempting for, the, for, 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 for God's people. It's too hard. It's way, way, way too hard to get to the promised land, to the ultimate hope. So give them a smaller hope. Give them a small H hope. And make that available to them through your women. And, and let them mix it up in every way possible. Because God's people may just go for that. They may just be so discouraged. And they may just so be ready to just not fight anymore that they might just cash out early on their hope. They might just cash out early because they're tired of fighting, because they're intimidated. That's what Balaam taught Balak. And that is what an unfaithful Christian teacher, whether they be official or unofficial, does with the people of God. You just cash out early. Don't fight. You don't want to be a culture warrior, do you? You don't want to be seen as a, as a mean person. So just cash out early. Mix it up. Compromise. Um, don't let there be friction. Let there be... Make love, not war. That's the teaching of Balaam. Cash out early. Trade your ultimate hope for a smaller, more immediate hope. Because the promised land, your future is too nebulous and far away. The bullies are too mean. The pressure's too great. Just go along to get along. What would that mean for us in Chicago? Well, it starts with starving our imaginations of the city to come. 
We stop seeing ultimate reality. We stop seeing the bright future God has for us. We stop participating in the holy meal. We stop hearing uh, of God's holy word of what's coming. We stop telling the story. And then it goes to hiding all associations with Christ. All associations with his church. It it, it turns into remaining indistinct from ambient culture. And living a double life. Accepting moral compromises at work instead of renouncing them. It could look like sheltering yourself from society at large because you're too afraid. Throwing away your confidence entirely and just creating, creating a, a sealed off reality for yourself. Cashing out early. Can look a number of different ways. But it starts in the heart. It starts in the imagination. Verse 16, Jesus says, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So, if you, any of you remember, either in the book or the movies, where King Theoden was led astray by Wormtongue. Wormtongue just kept telling him, you know what, it would just be best, King Theoden, to just, to just make an alliance with your enemy. He's not really your enemy. He's really seeking your good. And so, you should find ways of working with Saruman. You should find ways of, of letting him have the resources in, in, in your, and remaining indistinct from Saruman. He's not really your enemy. He's, he's actually an ally. And slowly but surely, King Theoden, the great master who was full of glory and light, began to curve in. And eventually, uh, as he says later to, to, to Wormwood, you would have had me crawling on all fours like a dog. Wormtongue with his sweet words of compromise, was actually diminishing the glory of Theoden and all of the land of Rohan. And it was so satisfying to read about when Gandalf comes and wars against Wormtongue and and actually sends him, banishes him from the land that he was destroying from the inside out with sweet words. This is what Jesus needs to do with us he needs, to, he needs to restore us to our glory. He needs to restore us to truth. Otherwise, we will bend in on ourselves and we will, we will not operate in the blessing that is upon us as God's people. Repenting means hearing. Verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him hear, not It says to the churches, not just to the church in Pergamum, but to the church at Ephesus and Smyrna and Philadelphia and every church that confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. Listen to the Spirit who speaks true words about the things that are and the things that are to come. Listen to the Lord who holds the double-edged sword in his hand. Because he's the one who's conquered. He's our hero and our forerunner. You know, Jesus spoke the truth in love to the politicians and to the priests, and they hated him for it. And he brought peace to a bloodthirsty empire. They couldn't make swords fast enough. And eventually they turned it on him. And then he would eventually, through his death and resurrection, turn every one of those swords into plowshares and artifacts. He outlasted Rome. Jesus has a way of conquering and outlasting every enemy and rival. No matter how powerful they are at any time in history, he conquers them. He conquered death itself by by accepting death and alienation and overcoming it in his resurrection. He conquered Rome. 
He outlasted every empire and ideology. Jesus Christ was on the wrong side of history until he turned history itself inside out. Christ will outlast every ideology and every force and every tyrant and every ruler. Christ will outlast Midwestern moralism that would claim him. And he will outlast the new urban righteousness that would tame him. This is good news because Jesus Christ brings a kingdom of peace and a kingdom of healing and a kingdom of justice. It's good news that he has overcome. It's actually a relief that he's conquered because he's such a good ruler. And he says this as a promise. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What is this promise hidden manna? And what is the white stone? You know, uh, when the people of God were traveling to the promised land, and they were right in the thick of their journey, and they were really hungry, and they were thinking about Egypt like, oh man, Egypt, it was like such good food, and can't we go back there just to get food? All I want is food. And how are we going to survive? How are we actually going to make it to the future? How is this vision actually going to be realized? And they'd go to bed, they'd go to bed hungry. And they'd be like, how are we going to eat in the morning? Little did they know about the hidden manna waiting above them. Overnight as they slept, it would fall. In the mornings, they would look up and realize that along the way, along the journey to this new city, along the way to this promised land, there was food, there was provision. God actually was with them. He was feeding them. And not only was it food for the journey, food for the present, it was, actually, it was also a foretaste of what they would taste in the promised land. What is the white stone? A scholars disagree on this. It could be the precious stones that, uh, that Jewish tradition taught fell along with the manna, signs of the, uh, the jewels of the new city. Some others think that it may be the white stone which in, uh, the Roman Empire symbolized access symbolized the ultimate invitation to the ultimate feast. If you had a white stone that operated like this in Chicago, all the museums are free. You just show them the white stone. Any game you want to go to, you just show them the white stone, and they're like, get him into the box seats. Put, put, put her right, right, next to the, right next to the hockey players. Game seven of the Stanley Cup playoffs. The white stone is the ultimate invitation to the ultimate feast. And the name that no one knows that's written on it, actually Revelation reveals what that name is, it's the name of the new city. It's the name of Jerusalem. It's the name of the city of Jesus Christ, which is the future for our world, of the perfect kingdom and the loving king. Both the hidden manna and the white stone refer to the kingdom of God. It's small and hidden. It's like nothing to our eyes. But ultimately, it becomes... It goes from a mustard seed to a great tree that is the largest of all the trees, that birds make their nests in that tree, and it offers shade to all who would seek its shade. This is our hope. Jesus says, don't lose sight of your hope. It's the hope that we celebrate and participate in every time we gather for worship. It's the hope that this humble meal will turn into the greatest feast that we have ever tasted. 
It is the promise that the Christ who is before you and behind you and above you, leading you on, protecting you, loving you, that though his presence right now is invisible to your eyes, it will be ultimately visible. And you will see him face to face and be overcome by his beauty and his love. It is the great promise that the saints around you who are so normal looking and, and, and so seemingly full of uh, besetting sins and annoyances will turn into the great beings of glory that they have been destined for. And that you will have adventures with them that will put any adventure, any bucket list in this life, this side of life, make it look like an absolute trip to Walgreens. Your vindication will be complete. You will have the ultimate invitation to the ultimate feast, led by the ultimate Lord of the dance and master of the party and king and desire of the nations. We need to recover the hope of the hidden manna and the white stone and the great city together as we worship. Because as we do, reality itself is revealed. And we can then begin to see our city as God sees it. Not as something to be feared, but as a city to be loved. Regardless of suspicion, it actually gives us the resources we need to move beyond suspicion to love. Our future in the kingdom of God is incandescently bright, and we all have a share in it. Those of us who have said yes to God through Jesus Christ, and our neighbors need this hope. Our neighbors have small age hopes that will eventually fail them and be cruel to them and tell them that they're ugly and tell them that they're not doing it right and they will ultimately need Christian hope. It will ultimately be an act of love for them, for us to embody it before their very eyes. What would this look like for us to practice this kind of hope? To live the Christian hope we experience and taste in now in our neighborhoods. Well. Here's one way, and you're already doing it. Let people know you. Let people know you. Link arms with your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and your fellow artists and create good things together and seek the good of the city and live sacrificially with them because we have some of the most sacrificial, altruistic neighbors. And along the way, when they ask why you're doing this, tell your story. Tell it in a winsome, humble, and hopeful way. Tell them of your great hope and resources in Jesus Christ, not as a matter of private peace, but as a matter of public beauty and justice and goodness. You know, some of you, if you've got free time and you're like, Emmanuel Anglican, what are you doing for outreach? Let me tell you, there's this outreach program and it's called Running for the Local School Council. Yeah, there's local school council elections happening all over the city. If you live in Uptown, you can run for the local school council for Uplift Community High School. And you can bring the resources that you receive in worship and bring it to bear for the good of the students here, for the good of the students in your neighborhood. Google it. You know how to do that. And run for local school council. I'm serious. You've got extra, you've got extra time? Listen, we'll pray for you and stand with you and help you. College students, I want you to consider and pray about staying in Chicago. College students studying for ministry. Do you know that you can be a youth pastor, as it were, as a teacher in Chicago? It's harder, but there is work to be done here. There's a, a way to bear witness in our city, to stay present in our city. 
consider staying here. Consider praying about the Lord situating you here in Chicago. So, in anticipation of Holy Week, in anticipation of the bright future we have as God's people, let us pray. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably on your whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery. Let the whole world see and know that the things which were cast down are being raised up, and the things which have grown old are being made new, and that all things are being brought to their perfection by him through whom all things were made, your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.